We're in a series called Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. And it's tied to our theme for the year on reimagining. Because if you're going to reimagine what life is like as we come out of this pandemic and all the other things that go on, let alone that, you, you've got to address decision making in order to keep walking forward and to see real change take place in your life. And so the theme, better decisions, fewer regrets, because every single one of us has at least one, if not multiple things where we wish we could go back in time, undo, redo, or make a different decision. Sometimes that decision was maybe made in ignorance, maybe in other situations, maybe deceived by somebody or misled. And sometimes we just know we made some bad choices. And if it's not you, then you can come up now and just take over and I'll go and sit down. Let's not vote on that. All right. <laughs> but today I want to address the whole thing of life-giving decisions. And our key verse is Ephesians 5, 15 through 16, where the Apostle Paul says, be very careful then how you live. He doesn't say be paranoid. And we should never be paranoid about decision-making. Because God can give us peace. And, and here's the redemptive thing, that even if we make a wrong choice, God can help redeem that, turn it around, turn it into something good. So be very careful, thing, how, careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity. I like that. Making the most of life's opportunities. Because the days are evil. And the reality is we are where we are because of the choices, the decisions we've made. And we make multiple decisions every single day. Some of them are just subconscious. We just know the routine, do this, do that, respond to that. You know, I don't know if you remember when you first started driving a car, maybe in that space right now, everything gear changed, although everything is automatic now. Indicators were such a conscious thing. Now we almost go on autopilot. Not always a good thing, but we do. Some decisions we make fairly confidently and others is this kind of nagging uncertainty. Is this right? Is it wrong? Sometimes a weighty decision and we just go, God, I need your help in this decision making. And decisions are like the steering wheel of your life and they turn and they direct the course of your life. And so we need to continue to make quality decisions with the best of our ability and with God's help. Now, the foundation of good decision-making, which we explored last week, is surrender, that God wants all of us. And it's not like we can go, okay, God, um, I'm about to make a decision. This is my choice. I'd like to see what you have for me, and then I'll choose which I think is better. Subconsciously, I think sometimes we do that. And God says, no, I just want you to yield and trust me. And we explored that, and that's often harder to do and easy to say. But God wants all of us. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. We also had to start at the point where we acknowledged that we've got to come with real honesty to decision-making. Because our human heart, now in the new covenant, we're given a new heart, but we still have this conflict of natures. The new nature that you've been given when you said yes to Jesus and the old nature that keeps trying to rise up and take over. 
the carnal nature, as the Bible calls it, or the old man. And the human heart, according to Jeremiah, is the most deceitful of all things. And you've got to come to terms that you can actually talk yourself in and out decisions. You can justify just about anything if given enough time. But the Lord searches all hearts and examines secret motives. So we asked a number of questions last week that I'm not going to repeat, but I've got a few extra ones in this process of making decisions. And the first one is so obvious, but sometimes we neglect it until we're in the crisis. Have you prayed about it? Whatever the decision is, have you prayed about it? And whether it's a big one that you actually need to take a little bit of time or one in the moment where you can just simply say, God, would you lead me and guide me? Could I have your wisdom in this situation? Even if it's a secret prayer that's just lifted up, but have you prayed about it? So in order to make better decisions and have fewer regrets, we need to actively pursue God's wisdom. And I love in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, and the book of Proverbs is filled with the wisdom of God for everyday practical living. He says this, For the Lord grants wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And he grants a treasure of common sense to the honest. To people who say, God, I know I have the capacity to make bad choices and I want to make good choices. I want to make God choices. I need your wisdom. He gives this wisdom. And wisdom is not just having knowledge about something. It's actually applying that knowledge or that understanding correctly. I want you to catch that. It's not just having knowledge. Because in a way, in our society, we are swamped with so much information. So it's not just knowledge. It's the ability to rightly apply what we know. And again, it comes from the Lord. So it comes from a relationship. The scripture says in the book of Colossians that in Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. So as you draw closer to Jesus, automatically more of that wisdom and knowledge and insight and understanding begins to flow in your life. According to the book of Proverbs, a fool is not somebody with a low IQ. A fool is not somebody with a low IQ. According to the book of Proverbs, it is somebody who ignores God and his counsel. Who says, no, I can do this by myself. I'm all right. I'll just make choices. I don't need God's help in this. But the scripture says, and I love this, and it's become part of almost a daily prayer. God, I need wisdom. Proverbs 4 verse 7, he says, wisdom is the most important thing. Get wisdom. And if it costs you everything you have, get understanding. So again, there's this exhortation to actively pursue the wisdom of God. And you get that mostly from the scripture and then the Holy Spirit speaking and illuminating and quickening things out of God's word. The pursuit of biblical understanding and knowledge is the foundation of wisdom. But he says wisdom is the most important thing obviously outside of having a right relationship with God 
through the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I've mentioned, wisdom is found out of a relationship with God. James 1 verse 5, and I love this verse for so many reasons. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all, and I love this, but without finding fault, and it will be given to you. There's so many things about this. Number one, you just ask God for wisdom. And the response from God's heart is to give you generously wisdom. And the thing that to me is so wonderful, and I did pause on this, I think you know where I'm going, without finding fault. So even if you've made a wrong choice, a bad decision, and you come to God and say, God, I recognize that that was a, a selfish choice, an ignorant choice, whatever the foundation of it may be. God, I still need your wisdom to get myself out of this, to, to find a new way forward, to find a God solution to this. God doesn't stand there and go, you silly person, why didn't you come? There's no rebuke in it. He says, all right, let's just start from where you are and let's see where you can go from here. And there may be some pain involved, but you don't have to have that sense of God going, you silly person, why did you make that decision? That kind of voice doesn't come from the heart of God. That's the voice of the enemy trying to lock you in despair about the wrong choice you made, the wrong decision. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. Have you ever made a wrong choice where somebody advised you not to do it and you did it anyway? Sure, there's none of you in this building. And then when it's blown up, they go, I told you so. God will not do that to you. And so if you want to be godly, don't do it to other people. Just a little thought there. The second big question is, number one, have you prayed about it? Number two, what does the Bible say about this? And if you don't know, that's where it's great to get into conversations with other followers of Jesus. They're not perfect, but if they know more of the word or just pick up a concordance, you go, a what? Well, that's actually an old big book that does the same function as the search function in your Bible app. But you just put in a word or something and you will find a topic, all the references to that word or to that topic. Concordance. But just go to your Bible app. You'll be fine and use the search function. I mean, it's so easy to find stuff now. And just start doing a bit of a study on what does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about that? Because here's what the Bible says about itself. And this is the inspired word of God. And it says all scripture, everything from Genesis to Revelation, is inspired by God. Literally the word inspired means it's got the breath of God on it. So this is more than just a book. And if you read it in an online thing, it's more than just pixels on a screen. It carries the breath of the Spirit of God, the Ruach, the Spirit of God there. And that's why it's so powerful. That's why it can speak to you in all sorts of situations. All Scripture is inspired and is useful to teach us what is true to make us realize what is wrong in our lives, 
to correct us when we are wrong and teach us to do what is right. And God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Why wouldn't you want to spend time in this? And I know for some, the minute I say that you're feeling guilty, just stop it. Please, just stop feeling guilty. This is not about trying to guilt you into something, but rather inspire you to do something. And that's why every week as a church, we have a devotional thing that you can go to the website, go to Bible, the church app, find what it is and hook into it. And mostly it's a short devotional reading with three or four scriptures that you can read. And that alone will begin to feed you and begin to connect you to the word of God. There's a whole lot of other things you can do, but that alone is a powerful thing. And to get into the habit of God, I'm going to give you 10, 15 minutes every day to the best of my ability. And here's the thing. If you miss a day or two or three or four, don't get the guilt. Oh, how will I ever catch up on my reading? Just tick them, pretend you did and start where it's fresh. Now, now, I'm not being silly about this. Often it is guilt that we didn't do it. And God's saying, I know you didn't do it. And I'm ready to talk to you afresh today. Let's start with today. His mercy is new every morning. Don't let guilt keep you away from God's word. That again is the voice of the enemy. Now, a warning. You will find stuff in this book that occasionally is confusing and you can explore that and talk to others and find input and do research and all that. But you'll also find things in this book that may offend you. That you go, I don't like that. And especially when the Holy Spirit quickens and you go, oh, that's getting a little bit of the pointy edge. Manufacturers provide labelling. And some of them are hilarious. I was going to pull a whole lot out, but for time's sake, I'm not. But one of the ones I read recently that was so funny was a label on the back of a kid's shirt, which simply said, remove child before ironing. <laughs> and I thought, like, really? We need to know that? You know? <laughs> remove child before ironing. And maybe there should be a label across all of our Bibles. Danger. This book may offend you. But if you're really interested in the truth, you'll engage with it, struggle with it at times. Again, the book of Proverbs 18 and verse 2. Fools have no interest in understanding. They only want to air their own opinions. Now, I know I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the person sitting next to you. If you're watching online, it's people you know who are sitting in here and not at home. It's not us. I think we've all been there where our opinion is the most important thing to us. And even if our opinion doesn't line up with the word of God, there's a challenge there. So my question is, as we engage with God's word, how teachable are you? How teachable are you? How teachable am I? So again, Proverbs 9 verse 8 and following So don't bother correcting mockers, they will only hate you. But correct the wise and they will love you. Instruct the wise and they will be even wiser. Teach the righteous and they will learn even more. So have you prayed about it? What does the Bible say? Here's a big one. What is my conscience saying? 
that inner voice. Now, I don't have time to go on this. The Bible talks that for some of us, our conscience is bruised because our conscience is a God-given thing, but it can be impacted by our upbringing, by our circumstance. And sometimes people have got a bruised conscience. They've been pounded on something incorrectly and now they're oversensitive to it. The Bible also talks about a wounded conscience and even a defiled conscience. It's cloudy, it's mixed. And I think all of us experience that in some way or another, all those different conditions. But we'll see in a moment, God has a way of healing and restoring your conscience. So sometimes, whether we like to admit it or not, when we're making a decision, we kind of feel this inner tension, this little bit of a struggle on the inside. And what we should do there is not panic about that, but see it as an orange or a red light where the, God is just saying to you, just slow down. You need to think a little more about this choice, this decision. Just slow down before you jump. Pause and ask yourself, why do I feel bothered about this? Why do I feel there's something, this inner tension going on within me? Paul in Acts 24 and verse 16 says, I always take pains. In other words, make a real effort to have a clear conscience both towards God and people. Towards God and people. And our conscience is that inner voice that helps us evaluate, judge our thoughts and our actions. And the wonderful thing is when you say yes to Jesus, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit works with your conscience to lead you and guide you. I love this statement in Romans 9 and verse 1 where Paul is struggling with a massive issue he's trying to communicate and he says up front my conscience enlightened by the Holy Spirit gives me assurance just think of that so again when you feel that anxiety that kind of warning light it's a great time to go back to the first point and say pray Holy Spirit would you show me why this orange or red light is going on inside of me, what I need to be aware of. Would you help me? Because the Holy Spirit will work with your conscience to help you make better decisions and have fewer regrets. Remember early on this point, I mentioned the Bible talks about bruised, defiled, even seared consciences. But listen to what the power of the new covenant or what God will do because of what Jesus has done and how connected the Holy Spirit is in this. Hebrews 9 verse 14, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. And perhaps one of the greatest prayers you could pray today, even in this moment, is to say, God, I need you to work on my conscience in accordance with that verse. I need a claim that the blood of Jesus that was offered up by the Holy Spirit, Jesus never making a wrong decision, perfect in all that he did and said. I need the power of that blood to cleanse, to purge my conscience, because I've got some struggles there. I've 
done things that have defiled it or bruised it or whatever the case is. God, I just need it. And I believe it's a prayer under the power of the new covenant we can live in. It's not just one off. Well, you got one cleansing and that's it. No, that's not the, the way the Bible talks about God and forgiveness and cleansing and restoring things. The fourth thing, firstly, have I prayed about it? What does the Bible say about it? What is my conscience saying? What does love require of me? Romans 13 and verse 8 says, Owe nothing to anyone except your obligation to love one another. Love does no wrong to others. So love fulfills the requirements of God's law. This is where it kind of gets a little bit awkward. And I think people in the world, including us, I'm not speaking condemnation here, just observation, um, struggle to live out of this law of love. I, I think it's been exacerbated with social media and all the stuff that goes on. And I don't know about you, I find it quite tiresome, all the opinions and the viciousness and the attacks and all the rest of it. But love is about actions. It's not about feelings. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 to 8, describes the actions of love. I know that passage is often read at weddings and it feels gooey and like, but they have no idea what they're actually reading about because they're still in this innocent, oh, we love each other. We continue to love each other, just assurance. But it becomes not just feeling, and that's one of the deceptions of the way love is portrayed in our world today. It's all about feeling. No, it's actually about choices. It's about decisions. And listen to the choices, the decisions that demonstrate love. And I'd like this verse left on the screen for a while, thanks. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking or selfish. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now there's a whole series in each one of those statements, but love requires patience. So in my choices, am I pushing people, becoming impatient? feel convicted already, just driving around Canberra and overtaking on roundabouts and getting too close behind people, I repent. <laughs> Love requires kindness. And there's many things we could say about that, but kindness is love's response to the other person's frailty, perceived weakness. Kindness is choosing to loan others our strength rather than reminding them of their failures and weakness. Love requires humility. 
It's happy to let other people shine even if you feel you should have got the attention. It's not threatened by the success of others. Love requires us to show honour to others. And love seeks never to treat somebody dishonourably, even if what they have done is dishonourable. Love doesn't seek to create, create regret in other people's lives. And I think honour is one of the most important foundations to any relationship, whether marriage, friendship, parents, children, whatever. Love requires selflessness. It's not self-seeking. It's happy to put the interests of others before yourself. And man, is that a challenge sometimes? My way or the highway is something that often echoes in our hearts. Love requires us to address our anger privately, not easily angered. It absorbs offence or seeks to before reacting. And again, it's so easy. And I'm admitting it to say these things, to live in it. Is another thing. Love requires us to forgive. It keeps no records of wrong. The list, but you always, but you never, and all those sorts of things. And remember 20 years ago, you, you know, it's how human nature gets drawn to that. And Paul's saying, no, that's not God's nature. That's not the new nature that's in you because of Christ. It's funny sometimes that when you encounter a relational record keeper, they never keep a record of what they've done, only of what you've done. Anyway, it's just a little thought there. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It protects, it's hoping for a better outcome. And yeah, of course, there are times when we are disappointed by the response or the lack of response. Love requires us to see and believe the best in others. It's generous towards others, even when they haven't met our expectations. And love requires us, it always protects, to do everything we can within our power. That's what the Bible says, do all that is in your power. Sometimes it's out of our control. It's beyond our influence. But where it is within our influence to seek to protect the relationship. I'm just going to read that verse. I'm about to hit the last point, but I think this is important. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. That's why love never fails. So have you prayed about it, the decisions? Have you searched what the Bible says? And that's an ongoing thing. Are you listening to your conscience as the Holy Spirit prompts and works through your conscience? And as we said, if there's some healing in that area that needs to take place, the Bible promises that through the power of the blood of Jesus can cleanse, restore a conscience. What does love require of me? And the last question is, am I actually trusting God as I make this decision? 
That's a big one. Am I actually trusting God? And it's often at that point where we struggle because God, we can only look to a corner. We can't look around the corner of the decision. God can, but here's the thing. He often doesn't tell us what's around the corner. He just says, I want you to make the decision trusting me that I know what's around the corner. But God, I want to know because I want to know the outcome. I want to know, are you going to do this or will this? No, he said, no, no. Trust me. You can see to the corner. I can see around the corner. Trust me. Oh, God, but what if... And we all struggle with that. Even if you walk with the Lord for a long time, there's still that moment of, God, what if you don't? Or what if you make me? Or what if... And we have that anxiety. And trusting is a choice. And it's not always an easy choice. But Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6, some of you are familiar with this passage. But let's look at it. Trusting the Lord with some of your heart and try and work it out as much as you can in your own head. I'm just saying what I do sometimes. I'm not, you know, I know that's not what the word says, but come on, let's look at this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. I just want to put in brackets there. It doesn't say don't use your brain. Okay, it's not, it just says, don't fully rely on your perception of something. And one of the things that Linda and I learned to do many years ago when making a major decision was to write out the pros and cons. So you're thinking of the implications and then pray over it and say, God, despite what we see, what we extend in our understanding to, if you want to prompt us the other way, we're open to that. So I've just learned to obey now and not argue. <laughs> I'm kind of joking, but there's a truth in that. It's amazing how often the voice of Linda and the voice of the Holy Spirit are almost the same. <laughs> and I give her credit for that, despite having a little bit of fun. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him. Remember, that was the starting point. Have I let go and am I letting God? In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. He will direct your paths, another translation says. So my question to you, whether you're part of our online campus here in the auditorium, is have you put your trust in the Lord first and foremost? Yeah, I'm speaking to everybody, even to those of us who've said yes to Jesus many years ago, last week, earlier this year, whenever it was. But if you've never taken that first step, because that's the first step that gets you into a right relationship with God through all that Jesus has done on the cross and in the power of his resurrection. Trust the Lord for your salvation, for your eternity, for your life. And it's that very first step of I put my trust in you. <music> 